Well, as the video showed us a few minutes ago, uh, kind of an enacted reading of Acts chapter 2, I'll ask you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts. And that's already been read for us. And there's another passage that I want to look at. In the series that we launched into last week, the book of Acts, we will we'll cover all of the book of Acts between now and uh, the close of the year, a couple breaks uh, that are in there. Acts chapter 2 is, is one of the important texts in God's gift of the Holy Spirit to us and the launching of the church and what the, the church looked like at its inception. And, and so in our study, we're, gonna, we're actually going to take three weeks in, to, to look at uh, Acts chapter 2. Today we'll, we'll get it started, and whenever the clock says that we should leave off, then we'll just pick it up next week. But as I was preparing this week and thinking about it, and, and Micah, he, he was just praying about it, that sometimes we get to a place where maybe we would say personally, corporately, that things once in a while just dry out and go stale. There are seasons in our faith, some, some up and down. Um, it's been like that with the people of God ever since God called the covenant people of God. The Old Testament is filled with stories of times when God's people did really well and they were close to him and walking in step with him and they were being led by good and godly leaders and there's other times in the Old Testament that the human pride and selfishness just get in the way and and they fall away from being obedient to what God called them to. And we get to the, there's a, there's a book in the Old Testament called Ezekiel. He, he was a prophet. And the people were in exile. They had um, grown stale in their faith, and they were paying the consequences uh, for their behavior. And I think that as a precursor to Acts chapter 2, this is a fitting text as well, and I wanted to read it to you. It, it's found in Acts chapter, or uh, excuse me, Ezekiel chapter 37. The hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. And he asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? Once in a while, maybe we feel like just dry bones wasting away in a valley when we think about our faith. And I said, Sovereign Lord, you alone know. And he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. 
I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. And then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come, breathe from the four winds and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them, and they came to life and stood up on their feet. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And thank the Lord that he is one that can bring dead things to life again. So we get to Acts chapter 2 here, and um, this passage of Scripture is one that is most often preached on the day of the Christian calendar that we call the day of, of Pentecost. And Pentecost, for the ancient Jews, was the celebration of, uh, it, was an, it was an agricultural festival that took place 50 days after the Passover. And Pentecost was the day when farmers would bring the first fruits of their crop and they would bring them as an offering to the Lord, um, partially in gratitude um, to God for providing that, but also in part to seek his blessing in bringing in the remaining um, crops that they still had out in the field. As time went on, Pentecost also became the time when the stories of old, the ancient story of uh, Israel's salvation out of Egypt was told. Um, you know, they celebrated Passover to remind them of their days in slavery in Egypt. They celebrated Passover to remember the night that they left Egypt in haste when the angel of the Lord passed over, passed over their camp and took the firstborn of those in Egypt. And, and that very night was when Pharaoh said, go. And they left Egypt. After 400 years in slavery, they, they left in haste. It's Passover, and they left quickly that night from Egypt, and they found themselves, 50 days later, they found themselves at Mount Sinai. And Mount Sinai was the place where Moses went up the mountain, and he received the law of the Lord, and he brought that back down to the people. And so Pentecost reminds them of this really this forming story in, in their narrative. And so now we get, to, we get to this place, and just like uh, Pentecost was a reminder, the, the law coming down from the mountain, it was God's way of giving to the people 
the way in which he wanted them to live. That's Pentecost. You could maybe summarize it like that. Now we get to the story in, in Acts chapter 2. It says the disciples were gathered on Pentecost. So Passover has happened. We call that uh, Easter. So 50 days later now we're at Pentecost and we read about God's gift of the Holy Spirit coming upon the disciples. And in a way, it's a new way by which God wants us to live. It's not like he took an eraser and erased his commandments, but he gave us the power. He gave us the Holy Spirit, the one who we talked about last week would be one who would lead us into all of God's truth. He gave us the Holy Spirit to help us find our way in the world, to help us live more like his son Jesus did. So that's where we, we get to this place. Last week we opened up in chapter 1 and Jesus had gathered his disciples and this was the time of his, you know, he ascended into heaven, but before he did that, he gave them some pretty explicit instructions. Well, last week we, we mentioned that he, he promised the Holy Spirit to come to give them power to do what? To be witnesses to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And it was a wave of Jesus saying that the Holy Spirit's going to come. He's going to fill you with power so that you can be witnesses so that the church that is being created becomes of a movement. It, this is something that is meant to expand. Our faith isn't just to take care of us and, and for us to find salvation. Our faith is something that Jesus explicitly says is to be passed along to other people. The Holy Spirit's going to come so that you can be witnesses. Not if you feel like it, but you will be witnesses to these places. Fortunately, some of those disciples listened because that's why we're here. The word went out from Jerusalem to the Gentiles, which is us. And it didn't, wasn't just instructions for the disciples that were gathered when they watched Jesus ascend. The, the instructions come all the way to us, and they will be passed on long after we're gone as, as well. So Jesus is telling them this church is, is going to be a movement and it's going to be powered by the Holy Spirit. It's not going to be anything that you can drum up on your own. It's not going to be fueled by your ability to, to do church better than anybody else. The Holy Spirit is what's going to animate and power the church. Church as movement powered by the Holy Spirit. And he told them the Holy Spirit's going to come and you've got to wait for it. Like, we've been waiting for a long time, Jesus. Three years, and then you left, and now you're back, and now you're leaving again. They probably like waiting as much as any of us like waiting. Do you think they knew what to expect? He said, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. I don't think I would have, if I was a disciple, I don't, know as if I would have had a really clear understanding of what Jesus meant by the Holy Spirit will come upon you. But nevertheless, they had enough history with Jesus that they obeyed him. 
We find that they did go back to Jerusalem and they gathered. And Acts 1.14, I think there's a transitional verse that we need to address before we get all the way into chapter 2. And in Acts chapter 1 and verse 14, it starts off, it says, they all joined together constantly in prayer. I like how uh, Eugene Peterson, he translates that verse as, they agreed they were in this for good completely together in prayer. At a time, at the time that this happened, it would have been very easy for them to split up, go their separate ways, um, throw in the towel, if you will. The climate uh, in Jerusalem at the time was not very Jesus-friendly. And so they were the ones who were most closely associated with Jesus. They might have been a little fearful to move openly about in that city, but nevertheless, they, they went back. And the way that Luke writes it down in Acts chapter 1 is they were very intentional about coming together. The, the word that he used is the, the Greek word there is homothumadon. You don't have to know that one to get into heaven, but it's not going to hurt you. Homothumadon, it means to have one mind, one accord, one passion. It's an, it's an interesting word, and it's only used 12 times in the whole New Testament. Ten of, ten of those times happen in the book of Acts. I think that this particular word helps us understand the uniqueness of this Christian community that's formed, homothumadon. It, it's, a, it's a compound word. It's two words put together. One, one means to rush along, um, and the other means to be in unison. To rush along and to be in unison. That's, that's homothumadon. And when I, when I think about those two words coming together, I, my mind immediately goes to musical performance. I love listening to symphonies and orchestras and listening for all of the color between the bass instruments and the treble ones. And each instrument has a different line that adds to the whole, right? And so together, you might hear the bassoon line and say, well, that's pretty cool, but it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And you may have another one that has the melody some of the time, but not all the way through. And it kind of bounces around the symphony. But when you put all of those pieces together, music kind of just bounces along, it rushes along, and it makes sense when it comes together in unison. That's homo thumadon. The disciples agreed that they were in this for good. And, you know, there's a couple ways that you can understand for good, as good as in wonderful and pleasant. But it's the other kind of good. They were in this for good, as in permanence, homothumadon, all of the 
hard work and the toil and the tears and the rejection and perhaps even Jesus' death on the cross didn't deter them from, from them following Jesus' instructions. And so there we find them huddled together, homothumadon, praying as the community that Christ formed around him. Those are good words for for any church, in any time, in, in any place. You could say that this Christian community was under pressure. There were plenty of reasons um, that they could fracture apart and fall away from one another. Life might actually even have been a little bit easier for them. Our culture teaches us that when things get difficult, that it's okay to disconnect, move along. Our culture would teach us if it's not my way, I can go find it somewhere else. And so the word homothumadon in the context of a church is a very powerful word because it's one that draws us together even in times when it may be easier to be at odds with each other and say, you know what, I'm just going to go do my own thing somewhere else. Disciples, I don't think anybody would have faulted them for splitting and going their own way because it was difficult. The burden of carrying the church forward, the the weight of the instructions that Jesus laid on them, the Holy Spirit's going to give you power, which they didn't understand yet, by the way. The instructions are to take my witness, to go tell my story, which isn't real popular right now, to Jerusalem, where I was crucified. And then to Judea, expand that out, and then to Samaria, we're a little at odds with Samaria. We don't know about those folks over there. And then to the ends of the earth, all of those Gentile folks who are the ones that are oppressing your country right now, yeah, they get the good news as well. That's a weighty instruction from Jesus. Sometimes under the weight of the pressure of things, we crack and we just decide it's not worth it and we go homothumadon, Luke says. They gathered for good around the cause, the mission that Jesus laid out for them. So Luke tells us they were gathered together. They were, uh, they were in it for good. The Holy Spirit would be the binding agent amongst them. And they were praying. And suddenly, suddenly there was a sound of a rush of wind. It doesn't say that there was a wind, which we often assume that, hey, the, there was just a wind that blew through the house. Maybe, but Luke doesn't say that. He says there was the sound like a rushing wind. Have you ever been in a rushing wind storm? That can be very loud. And wind is terribly unsettling. So they hear this sound of the rushing wind and there's fire and all sorts of things. And Yeah, I'm thinking that would have been pretty incredible to witness, wouldn't it? I mean, 
I would love it if that happened right now. That would be something to behold. I'm thinking who's sitting around in that room. Peter and James and John and Andrew, the rest, the rest of the disciples. They, they had seen some pretty incredible stuff in their days with Jesus, hadn't they? I mean, yes, the rushing wind and the fire got their attention, but those guys were witnesses to lots of stuff. I mean, they were all present. The day that they're gathered out on the hillside and the crowd had come out to Jesus and he was teaching them. And everybody was hungry. And Jesus says, hey, we're going to feed this crowd. And the disciples said, you're crazy. We don't have enough money in our cash bag for that. And there's not a grocery store down on the corner that we can go and get all the food for these. It's not going to happen. And Jesus said, well, you're going to feed them. <laughs> what? So they go and they round up some bread and some fish. And Jesus does a miracle and he feeds an entire crowd. They, they witness that. That would be life changing, wouldn't it? I mean, these are the same guys who were in the boat. They're, you know, rowing away, and it's not, I mean, they're, they're trying to go this way, and the wind and the waves are pushing them that way, and they're crashing. The, the, the waves are about to take the boat down, and Jesus is sleeping in the boat, and they wake him up. Hey, Master, don't you care if we drown? He wakes up and he calms the storm, dead calm. Not the waves gradually dissipated and went away, and the wind faded down to a breeze and went away. No. One moment, fierce wind and waves that are going to swamp the boat. The next moment, dead calm. Like that. They witnessed that. That's pretty incredible. They witnessed Jesus walk out across the water. They witnessed Jesus spit in the dirt and make some mud and put it on a guy's eye and, and heal a blind person. They watched him cast out demons. A few of them Jesus took up on the mountain and he was transfigured in front of them and they heard the voice of God coming out of heaven. That's pretty incredible stuff right there that they got to witness. Some of them were near the cross when Jesus was crucified. Some of them knew exactly where that tomb was that they laid him in. Rolled that big stone in front of the tomb. They knew he was dead. They knew he was gone. A few days later, the women who were present, who went out to care for Jesus' body, find that that stone, it's back over here, and the tomb is empty. Well, where did he go? And he starts appearing to people, to his disciples. And then, and then they're all gathered, and, he, and the, it says the, the doors were locked to the room. And Jesus shows up in the room. That's pretty incredible stuff that they were witnesses to, right? Last week, chapter 1, we're reading along and Jesus is telling them about their instructions and all of a sudden he just ascends 
and disappears into a cloud up into heaven. They were witness to that. These disciples saw some pretty incredible, life-changing, life-altering things in their day, and they were still taken by surprise on the day of Pentecost when the sound like a, a rushing mighty wind filled the room, and then there was fire. I always wonder what the disciples thought when Jesus said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and will fill you. I'm going to ascend, and the Holy Spirit's going to come down. What did they imagine? Well, I thought about that for a while, and they had some history to go on. They, they knew the Scriptures. They had been taught the stories of old. They knew about the Exodus. They, they knew about the history of their people. And it wasn't like the presence of the Holy Spirit was absent in the Old Testament, just manifested in a different way than what we read about in the New Testament. The Holy Spirit has been present from the very beginning, from the opening verses in Genesis, when God hovered over the deep, and His Ruach called everything. He, he blew the breath of life into everything. The Holy Spirit's present all throughout. But in their story, the Holy Spirit is also present in some very well-known characters that they would have known about. The Bible tells us I think it's in Numbers that the Holy Spirit filled Joshua, one of the great leaders of those people as they entered into the Promised Land. The work of Joshua, his leadership ability was empowered by the Holy Spirit. They would have remembered some of the great characters coming out of the book of Judges. The judges were ones who that God tapped on the shoulder and, and gave them, um, you know, mo um, momentary, I mean, depending on how long of the time it was, but they, they were filled for a time with the Spirit to free the people, to rescue them. And so they would know characters like Gideon, who was filled with the Spirit to rescue the people. They, they would have known about Samson, who was filled with the Spirit and was given like this superhuman strength to rescue the people. And so there are some things that, hey, you're going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. I want that they may have thought, wow, we're going to be superheroes. This is the way this is the way that God is going to deliver his people. We are going to be filled with the Holy Spirit and given superhuman strength, and we're going to take care of the Romans. That could have crossed their mind because there was clearly evidence of things like this in the Old Testament. And so when, there, when there's a little bit of a disconnect, is, oh, what does this Holy Spirit mean? It would be fair to say that maybe some of those things came to mind, and so, hey, is this the time? Is the Spirit going to come, come upon us and we're going to deliver our people? Well, not quite like that. <laughs> There's some observations that, that I think that we ought to make uh, as we start into chapter 2 and, and work our way through it over the coming weeks. 
first observation is um, that the arrival of the Holy Spirit and being filled with the Holy Spirit has sometimes caused people to think it should elevate us above some of the earthly realities of our faith and operating together in community. In other words, we get distracted with the sounds of wind and the fire, and we think that the gift of the Holy Spirit is going to give us some heightened super sense of spirituality that will help us rise above the regular stuff that we have to deal with. But I would say that um, we need to notice, we need to pay attention to where the story fits in to the whole narrative that Luke lays out for us. There's two important stories on either side of the text that we're looking at. Chapter 1 closes out um, about the story where the disciples are uh, trying to elect new officers. They are trying to fill the disciple vacancy left by Judas. That's the story that's right before it. And the story that comes right after, which is the last few verses of Acts chapter 2, that story tells us uh, about the church breaking bread together and attending to the teachings of the apostles and to trying to care for those who are in need in, in their midst. So if you think about it, Pentecost, the arrival of the Holy Spirit, happens between the election of church officers and struggling to figure out what does Sunday school look like and how do we do small groups and what do worship services look like and how, do we, how are we good servants to the people around us in need. If you distill that out even a little bit more, you could say that the story of Pentecost happens between the institution of the church in the mission of the church, right in the middle. Right in the middle of the very earthly reality things that God calls the church into. The, the story of Pentecost isn't one that lifts us up and out of the sometimes mundane and routine stuff that we have to deal with as being, uh, being a church and being a, a faithful follower of Christ. It, it doesn't give us some super spirituality that, that allows us to rise above all of, the, all of these things. The, the gift of the Spirit is something that drives us deeper into them. I like how N.T. Wright talks about it. He connects Jesus' ascension and the coming of the Holy Spirit together. He says, It is most significant in light of the ascension that the wind came from heaven. The whole point is that through the Spirit, some of the creative power of God Himself comes from heaven to earth and does its work there. The aim is not to give people a spirituality which will make the things of earth irrelevant. The point is to transform earth with the power of heaven, starting with those parts of the earth which consist of bodies, minds, hearts, and lives of the followers of Jesus. So the power of heaven comes 
to earth with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit fills us, gives us the power so that we can deal with these realities. That we can bring the heaven down into our earthly existence and it goes, it flows out from us to other people so others can experience it. The second observation that and I think we ought to make is um, that the Holy Spirit spe- specializes in mass customization. You get junk mail at your house? Lots of it? <laughs> yes. The, the volume of the advertising, um, it astounds me. I'm amazed at the number of advertising pieces that come through my, my mailbox. I mean, I'm fascinated with the amount of money that makes it from my countertop to my garbage can like that. I mean, just calculate it sometime. It, it's staggering, but it works. Otherwise, they wouldn't, they wouldn't do it. And it's obvious that some of these pieces, they're, mass, they're clearly mass-produced. They send them to a printer and you know, and out come a million of them and they get into the mailboxes and they buy a mailing distribution list and out they go into our households. And we probably get a lot of the same junk mail, especially in campaign season. Um, But what you might not realize is that the pieces that look like they are mass-produced are oftentimes customized to the demographic of the person to which they are intended. In other words, if company A was going to market something to me and to Lisa, the, the piece of mail that would show up at our house would have different pictures on it. Because they know that we are likely, being male and female, drawn to different images. So what sparks my attention might be different than what sparks Lisa's attention. They know our ages. So they know that if they are marketing to a younger generation, they use a certain set of images, and if they are marketing to an older generation, then they, they appeal to different things that we're interested in. And so, yes, they are mass produced, but they are individually customized based on their opinion of what might draw our attention. That's called uh, mass customization. It's not just in mail pieces. It happens online. You may have had this experience where you, if Amazon users in here, anybody? That's it? (laughs) Really? Okay. I saw all the planes coming in and out. I know that (laughs) Facebook users, you have to raise your hand because most of you are my friends. (laughs) (laughs) If you do a search query on Amazon for something, I am looking for this in this particular color, and you spend that time looking on Amazon, searching through their thousands of options for the same thing, and then, you know, a few minutes later, you go over and you click on Facebook to see what's happening in the world. You start scrolling, and all of a sudden, 
there's an advertisement for what you just searched for. They know. They know. Somehow they know. <laughs> the weirdest one for me was I had a conversation with Ernie. We are looking at replacing the drinking fountain out there with one that has the little water bottle filler on it. Which would be kind of cool, right? You can donate to that. Um, <laughs> I found a beautiful one. It's in, it's in my wish list on Amazon. We had a conversation standing around the coffee shop downstairs about, hey, that would be a nice upgrade to our drinking fountain here. I hadn't gone to Amazon to look for it yet. I haven't searched. We had a conversation. I came upstairs, and I looked. I just scrolled through Facebook for a minute, and there was one of them. Now that, see, they know. Somehow they know, right? I don't know how they do that one. I was pretty impressed. I'm like, wow, that's a little bit creepy. <laughs> Mass customization. Things that are designed for the multitudes, but they are individually crafted to get your attention. Did, did you notice in the text that the Holy Spirit is a master at this? The Holy Spirit comes to work with individuals. You have a story that's all your own. You have a story that's unique to you. Your feelings, your thoughts, your emotions, your, your history all makes you who you are right now, and God cares about that, and he comes to you through his Holy Spirit, individually speaking. But he does that with all of us. It's mass-produced. The Holy Spirit is available to the masses, but everybody has a very powerful individual experience with the creator of the universe, with your creator. He cares about you and your story and your thoughts and your feelings. He comes to you in a unique way that is specifically meaningful to you. doesn't matter where you are in your journey. He meets you exactly where you are. He doesn't say, you have to elevate to this level before I will be in contact with you. He says, no, wherever you are, wherever you need to start from, I know I'll meet you right there. Something that's available to everybody, but very, very, very individual. And I think that's good news for us. You don't have to report some exotic experience of the Holy Spirit. You don't have to have heard the sound of a rushing wind or experienced fire. You don't need the pyrotechnics of the, Holy Spirit to of the Holy Spirit to have had an experience with the Holy Spirit. God comes to each of us in our own unique, individual way. I think we have time for one more observation. We can say that uh, the Holy Spirit works with individuals but did you also notice that the Holy Spirit came upon the praying community? Homothumadon, they were all gathered together. They were all praying, and so there is something very powerful about the church gathered together and the Holy Spirit being poured out upon all of us collectively.
the movement of the Spirit is, um, in this text, is the Spirit descending from heaven down to the gathered community, uh, to the church, and the church happens when the Holy Spirit descends. That's the trajectory that, that Luke lays out for us here. It's kind of like the, we talked a little bit about it, uh, when, when Jesus was baptized and he came up out of the waters of baptism and the skies opened up and the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove, it's kind of reminiscent of that kind of language, that kind of thought that the, the Spirit of heaven comes down. Eugene Peterson, he says, the church is something that is breathed on from above. Don't you like that? The breath of God breathes down onto the church. The church came into being as the Holy Spirit descended upon the praying men and women who were gathered. That's a beautiful picture that God breathes life not only into individuals, but he breathes life into the church. Gives us the power to do what we do. The Gospel of John John articulates it a little bit differently than, than Luke does. John talks about the Holy Spirit coming as Jesus breathed on his disciples. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit. In other words, what was inside Jesus, he breathed on his disciples so that they would breathe it in. And what was inside Jesus is now inside them. That's a beautiful picture of how the Holy Spirit fills us and operates amongst us. And I don't think that the experiences that we're talking about in Scripture here, it may look different, but it's the same thing. It's the same experience of God breathing out His breath and, and filling us with, with life and power and energy to do all of the things that He wants us to do, starting with being witnesses where we are and growing out in concentric circles. See, Jesus does this work, this Holy Spirit does this work in us. Individually, yes. Corporately, yes. But it doesn't, it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop right there. It doesn't stop when, we, when we've had this, oh, wow, that experience was so awesome. I just want to stay up on this mountaintop for a long time. I never want to move. Remember when... Remember when the disciples were on the mountain with Jesus at his transfiguration and it was one of those spiritual high points like they were felt like they were really close to God and Peter said, hey, let's, let's build some huts. Let's put up some tents so that we can just stay here and soak in this moment. And Jesus says, no, that's not how it's going to work. See, there are times when us as a church and you as an individual, you'll, you'll just, you will feel a more palpable presence of God. And those are wonderful times to think about and, and remember back on, but it's not the place that we stay. We don't get caught up in the super spirituality that seems to be present in the text, that the Holy Spirit comes and does its work in sometimes very loud ways, sometimes in very quiet ways. Sometimes as the sound of a rushing wind, sometimes just as a whisper, just when we need it. It doesn't end with us. It's, all, it's, it's meant to be a pass-through. God does this work in us so that he can do a work through us. 
Because our experience is to be shared with each other and with people who aren't here yet. The, the empty chairs that might be next to you are to be filled with our witness. These, the chairs represent people who aren't here yet. And the people who aren't here yet, they haven't been invited by you yet. God promises to do the work in us. He pours out his Holy Spirit upon us, fills us. The Holy Spirit is in us so that he can do his work through us. And the very first work that he lined out was to be witnesses. Go share that story. Go share the good news of Jesus Christ with your friends. Tell them how Jesus has been working in your life. We'll pick that up next week. Because the Holy Spirit does empower and embolden us to go out and do such things. And, and we see evidence of that given to us in, in Acts chapter 2. For this morning, I, I, think it's, I think it's important that you let yourself be out in the wind. When we have windstorms, oftentimes we, we go inside and we hide. I hope the electricity doesn't go out. I got a lot of stuff in the refrigerator that I don't want to spoil if the power goes out. I don't want the branch to fall on me. It's human nature. That's fine. In the wind of the Holy Spirit, we ought to be out in it. Fill us, Lord. Breathe your breath of life upon us and into us. Let the Spirit sweep through your heart and your life and your mind and let him, let him sanctify and transform your imagination for him. Let the wind of the Spirit this wind that, that comes from heaven, the very creative breath of God, cleanse and transform you. Open the closet doors of your heart. The place where you hide all the stuff that you don't want people to know about you. Throw open those doors and let the Holy Spirit blow through and clean all the cobwebs out. See, there's the, the breath of God, the wind, but there's also that fire, and fire is known to be purifying and cleansing. He'll do that work in your life. It doesn't matter how far gone you think you are. Nobody's outside the reach of God's forgiveness. And remember back to Ezekiel 37. The dry bones. The staleness, the deadness laying all around. The breath of God came and reanimated all of those things. He brings dead things to life again. So be transformed from a lifeless believer to one whose heart is on fire with the love of God. People of God said, mm, amen, amen.